Welcome back to PeteScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a Peds ICU fellow in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. So we're excited to come back to you with part two of our conversation with Dr. Stockton Beveridge and Dr. Katie Maddox on pediatric palliative care. Yes, this is such an impactful episode. Let's get right to the content. A lot of these skills in palliative care, we need those in the ICU because we have to have these difficult conversations with families when their kids get really sick really quickly, um, maybe overnight, maybe in opportune times. Do you have any practical tips for us and our listeners about how to have these hard conversations with families? That's another great question. And we do. We feel very strongly about this, in fact. And just to, I appreciate that shout out to Katie and to our lectures. I'm sure that you're sick of us by now and you're not anywhere close to done hearing lectures from us, but we love getting an opportunity to do that. We view in our work communication as the palliative care procedure. To that end, if you think about other procedures that exist in medicine, like say a central line, when you're learning to place a central line, you don't go into the room and say, well, I've seen a central line in its final form. I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to throw one in and see what happens. Because if you do that, you risk doing a lot of harm to the patient. And so contrary to that, there's a checklist of some odd, however many it is, things that says this, you do this, and then you hold on to the wire and whatever it is. I've never had to place one. My wife does. She's an adult adult resident, so I guess that falls to her. Um, but similarly with... Um, with communication as a procedure, we believe that there's a framework that we should be using to help us to have these conversations or a scaffolding. And so the the framework that we use and that has largely become the standard of care in palliative care and in other fields where difficult communication is important is something called the Vital Talk curriculum. This is a curriculum that was created by uh, a guy named Bob Arnold at Pittsburgh. He's an adult oncologist. But it stresses an acronym that, Zach, I know we've lectured to you as nauseam called REMAP, and we lean very heavily on on that curriculum, and there's principles of it that, that we are constantly going back to having these conversations with families. Katie, I don't know if you want to describe some of the acronyms. Yeah, sure. So REMAP, R-E-M-A-P, is, like Stockton mentioned, the framework or the scaffolding that we hold on to. I sort of think of it as a map in my head when I'm in these conversations. And if they veer off, I know where I'm trying to get get us back to. So the R stands for reframe. The goal is for everybody in the room to agree we're in a different place and we need a new plan. And so the way you do that is, like I mentioned before, ask the family's perspective, figure out where they think we are. A lot of times what they tell you is exactly right and you can just move forward. If you need to provide some additional information, then you ask for permission to do that. And then you provide that information in what we call a headline, which is a very short, specific phrase, um, usually one to two sentences that conveys the information that you're there to give, but also the meaning behind it. So the blood work showed this, and that means the chemo didn't work. So then that takes you into the E, which is expect emotion, respond with empathy. That headline is inherently emotional and families, if they really heard it and took it in, will have an emotional reaction to it. And we should not gloss over that or bypass it, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Most physicians' knee-jerk reaction is to provide more information because we have the information and we want to share it and that we believe help make families feel better. But what we know about the pathophysiology of the brain and brain chemistry and how your limbic system and amygdala respond before you're able to actually process and retain information we're really doing families a disservice by just providing more and more medical information at this time. So Vital Talk teaches stop, slow down, respond to that emotion with empathy, 
and then ask, ask again permission. Is it okay if we talk about what comes next? Then the M is for mapping out values. So figuring out in light of the current medical situation and, and where we are, what's important to families? What are they hopeful for? What are they worried about? Are there any lines in the sand, any limits that they know they want to put in place? This is really helpful for families who have been in the medical system for a long time, who've seen other kids go through this or in parent support groups or know what's coming at the end of this path. And, you know, they'll often tell you, I knew at some point we were going to get here. I just know I don't want a trach for him or I know I don't want another surgery, whatever it is. So um, what's important? What are they hoping for? What are they worried about? And do they have any limits? Once you get all of that information and um, that brings you to the next letter of the acronym, which is A for aligning. So all along you're I hear you. It sounds like what you're saying is it's really important to avoid more surgery. That makes sense to me. Just building rapport again and repeating back what you hear. And then finally, at the end of all of that, you come to P for plan. And so at that point, you know what's important to the family. You know that they understand what's going on and you can actually say, okay, based on everything that you've told me, I think what makes the most sense here is that we do X, Y, or Z. And so you can actually make a recommendation. You can suggest a plan that you know is going to be acceptable to the family because you've talked about their values already. So R-E-M-A-N-P or uh, some portion of that is how almost all of my conversations with families look. And I'll, I'll mention that this is a big bite. This is a lot to tackle in one conversation. And so more frequently it happens in pieces. The R and the E usually go together and then you map a little bit and then you come back, take a break. Then, you know, two days later, you're in a different situation. You give another headline and map some more until you finally get to a plan, which is another reason it's nice for us to have some time to do that and not have our backs up against the wall in a in a clinical scenario. Though I want to recognize that you guys are in ICU and it's an intensive care unit and sometimes you have to do that. Sure. I think having the acronym is really helpful. All of the steps make intuitive sense, but having somewhat of a checklist does help me when maybe it's a high stakes scenario, maybe a child's really sick, maybe we don't have as much time. And I have seen attendings who are well-skilled in communication move through something very similar to this over the course of resuscitation to help a family get to the decision that they ultimately want to make for their child. I have seen a couple pitfalls here. Um, so when someone wants to perhaps maybe move past a step too quickly, I do find this structure kind of falls apart. Do you have any have any like common mistakes or, or common issues that maybe people who aren't as well trained in this structure tend to run into when they're using this? Yeah, I can take this one. You're right. This is difficult even with the framework. I mean, this is high stakes and emotionally jarring for us as providers as well because it's hard to have these conversations. The two mistakes that I think I see the most, the first has to do with the, the R and remap, that headline. I think that we are sometimes not intentional enough about developing that headline and sometimes not as quick to strive for clarity and conciseness with that headline. And so we often say in, in our lectures that we talk to families as if we're talking to our attending on rounds, as if we're almost giving them a soap note, right? So these are the subjective things. These are the objective things that we've done. And for all these reasons, this is what I believe. And it takes us a long time to get there. And there's a lot of information up top uh, before we do. And Vital Talk teaches to kind of flip that pyramid 
and to try to give a concise and quick headline um, up at the very beginning to sort of avoid that confusion and to be abundantly clear with the family. I think also pertaining to the headline, often we will give information, but not the meaning associated with that information and expect a family to connect the dots. So an example would be the an oncologist may say, well, you know, the tumor has gotten bigger and we expect the family to know, well, and that means the chemo didn't work, or that means that there's not a good treatment option left, but we don't say that explicitly, and the, it's unfair to ask that of families when they're, they're in these emotional straits. And then the second mistake or pitfall that we see relates to that E of remap, which is the, the expect emotion piece of it. I think that we, whether due to time constraints or discomfort or, or whatever it is, don't do justice to the emotions that families are experiencing when we when they're receiving bad news like this. And we often treat the things that come out of families' mouths after they've heard bad news as cognitive or logical questions or cognitive statements rather than emotional statements or manifestations of the emotion that the, that they're experiencing having heard bad news. And so an example of that is would be an oncologist saying, well, the tumor's bigger and, and that means that the chemo didn't work and there's and your child will die from this cancer. And a family may say, well, isn't there something else that you can do? They're not truly asking that question. That's more a manifestation of this is really scary and this is really hard. And so the wrong way to respond to that is to say, well, we did do the good chemotherapy or we did do everything that we can or you know, this is how this tumor works and this is why we know it's these biomarkers tell us it's not going to respond to the chemotherapy. The way to respond to that question is, I can't imagine how hard this is to hear, or I know this must be so scary. And so it's doing justice to that emotional step rather than moving forward into, okay, what do we do now? And if we do that to help get the emotion as tamped down as we can to allow the family to begin making decisions that are not governed by emotion, but are governed by what's important to them and to their children. A lot of those statements that Stockton mentioned are statements of empathy and statements that respond to emotion empathetically. And it can be any emotion, sadness, shock, grief, anger, frustration. Vital Talk has a mnemonic for those statements too. Um, We call them nurse statements. And unlike REMAP, it's not a mnemonic that you walk through in order one, two, three, and four, but they're a nice way to remember, hey, what I'm recognizing here is emotion. And how do I respond to that again? Oh yeah, one of these empathetic nurse statements. And so they're naming the emotion. This feels really scary. I know this isn't the news that we were expecting. You must be so frustrated. The U is for understanding. I can't imagine what you're going through. It makes a lot of sense to me that you feel that way. Um, R is for respect statement. So you're doing such a good job. You've done everything right. You're a really good mom. He's really lucky to have you. The S is for supporting statement. So we're not going anywhere. We'll be here every step of the way. You'll always have somebody with you. And then E is for explore. Tell me more about what you're thinking. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Help me understand. And so what I encourage learners to do is to pick two, maybe three of those kinds of statements that feel natural and normal to you so that when you recognize emotion, you can come out with those and help move the conversation forward. Can I ask what your favorite category of nurse statement is? (laughs) They're all so good. Um, I think I use support statements the most. They build a lot of rapport and trust. And a lot of families that we meet with are so beaten down and just used to hearing bad news after bad news after bad news. To say really supportive and positive things about them goes a long way and you just can see them light up. 
this is really hard. You're doing such a good job. He's so lucky to have you. It's obvious that he is so loved. I try to end a visit with two or three of those every time. I know it's boring, but I have the same answer. <laughs> I love a good support statement. I mean, I think four or five times a day I'm saying, you know, you're a great mom. And, and he's so lucky that, that you're his mom and you're his dad, you know, and, and I think that, that that goes a long way with these families. And I'll also add, it's not lip service. When you really get into the muck and the mire and hear these people's stories, it's amazing what they've gone through and what they've been able to overcome and what they're persevering and the dedication that they put into this and in really challenging times. I mean, those are sincere things coming out of our mouths. Yeah, and this is the real rewarding part of our jobs, I think, is getting to bear witness to that. I'm wondering, going back to the headline, do you have specific tips for crafting a tight headline? And then are you also saying them out loud still before you go into family meetings, or do you feel like it's just automatic at this point? It's a very insightful question. Headlines are harder <laughs> harder than they sound. In fellowship, we were trained to write them down. I would say at this point, a few years in, I think about them intentionally and most times still say them out loud because you'd be surprised when you're trying to get it to a real clean, clear one to two sentences with meaning when the stakes are high, how challenging it can be. So my tip would be to be intentional before you go in the room about what is the most important piece of information I want this family to hear? What is the meaning that I'm trying to convey with that information? And then write it down or grab a friend and say it out loud. It's a little bit like muscle memory. You can get comfortable the more you say it and really clean up any of those. Let me back up. I don't want to explain pancytopenia to you. I didn't mean to do that. Maybe what I meant to say was that the blood work is abnormal instead. You can kind of clean up those bumps. So we talked a lot about these fundamental skills we can possibly use in our next shift in the ICU. Do you have any other tips as we move through the latter half of our fellowship training and then on to being attending in the not so distant future, how we continue to add additional skills to be a better communicator with our patients and be more proficient in these difficult conversations? It's a great question. I think that we are not naive to the fact that the life of an ICU fellow is really hectic and that it's hard to find the time to learn these things and to practice these things when you've got a unit full of some of the sickest kids in the hospital. I think that doing your best to find opportunities to practice, whether in formal family meetings or formal breaking bad news conversations, but also in informal times, practicing those nurse statements, practicing what is what is my headline from rounds today, right? And trying to trying to practice those things, make tighten up those skills can be really helpful. You know, a big part of a palliative care fellowship is watching experts, your attendings do this work and trying to see what are things that they're doing that I would be able to emulate in my own practice and but also what are things that don't feel right to emulate in my own practice. And so we feel that there is a lot of nuance in palliative care and a lot of opportunity to bring your own personality into it. And so if Katie and I think have a lot of respect for how each of us does our craft. But if I do my job exactly like Katie does it, it's not going to be right. It's not going to sound authentic to me. And if Katie does her job with a Southern accent and like trying to do the good old boy thing, that's not going to go well either. And so, so much of it is trying to figure out who are people that are doing this well and what is the language that they're using that fits to my authentic self? And like, how can I fit my own personality within the scaffolding that we know to be the best way to do it? I totally agree with that. The just want to echo the exposure piece. And um, we know it's challenging, but as much as you can to be in those conversations, to lead parts of the conversation. 
I think the greatest learning opportunity that we had in fellowship was to lead conversations and have somebody observe us. That's such a rarity in a busy clinical setting, but a real gift to have somebody more seasoned than you watch you and give you tips and pointers and feedback. So just exposure as much as you can, not shying away from them, passing off your phone or your pager when you can and going in and, and sitting down. So again, so, so many great practical tips. As we move towards the end of our conversation, just wanted to highlight one more difficult scenario that we sometimes find ourselves in. So say you're working with the family and the child who's so incredibly seriously ill, um, but we've had a hard time communicating well with this family. And maybe the parents or the, the family members keep insisting they want everything done, even though they might not quite understand what that entails and all the procedures and pain and suffering that may go along with, with these interventions and without much chance of improvement for their loved one. How would you recommend we might navigate a scenario similar to that? We try really hard to avoid that phrase. You will never hear the words everything done come out of Stockton or Mai's mouth for a reason. Because when families say everything done, what they mean is everything done that might help my child. They don't want to amputate a leg if that's not going to help, right? And so when families say everything done, we on the medical side perceive that as full code and full life prolonging interventions and ECMO and CVVH and whatever else we have in our arsenal. And so the answer on how to deal with that is really is remap and spending time mapping values. So in light of what's going on, what I'm hearing from the team, what we're worried about, tell me what's important to you. And then if they say something, I want him to get better. I want him to walk out of here and you don't think that that's clinically likely, you align with that. I hear you. And then I really wish that that were possible. I want that too. I'm worried based on what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing that that's not going to be possible. And I wonder if we could talk about what it might look like if we don't get that wish or if that doesn't happen. And then you talk about, okay, what seems important to you? If we were in a place where time were short, what kinds of things would you want us to focus on? You know, some families tell me that any time that we can get from being on machines is valuable time and time is the most important thing to them and that's what they would want. And other families tell me if I'm going to get just a little bit more time, but if it's on machines and if it's going to be stuck in the hospital, then no, I wouldn't want that. And I'd rather focus on making the time that we have be good time. And so if you can spend time in mapping values and figure out if that wish that the family wants is not likely to come true, then what else would they want? Then at the end of that, you can say, okay, based on everything that I've heard, what I recommend is that we continue doing what we're doing. We do everything that we can to help him get better from this. And if we're seeing signs that his body is not recovering, that we will focus our efforts on keeping him comfortable and making sure that he doesn't suffer. And then you can move into the explicit. That means that I don't recommend that if his heart stops, we do things like CPR, compressions, machines, or shocks, because that wouldn't help us reach your goal. That wouldn't help us get more good time with him. And so if you explain what you recommend based on what they told you and what you don't recommend based on what they told you, then families leave that conversation feeling like, okay, this doctor hears me, they get it, they're going to do everything within their power to get him better. There are some things that are outside of our control, though, and we're not going to do things that um, won't help. I think that was beautifully put, Katie, per usual. Um, the one thing I want to add to that is I think that these we want everything done families are so hard because they create such moral distress for the providers and for the for you know moral injury for us as we're often asked to do things that we might not choose for ourselves or for our own children. 
But I want to also introduce or at least reaffirm that it is important for us to approach these cases with humility, knowing that we're not the ones that are in their shoes and we're not the ones that have our loved ones laying in the bed next to us. Or we often say that at the end of the day, our patient's parents are the ones who are going to be driving home either with a child who is much different than the one that they brought in or without their child at all. And so it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes. And so trying to approach this situation from a place of humility, one which seeks understanding, I think is a really helpful mindset as providers, both in ministering to families, making sure that they feel heard, but also helping with our own moral distress, moral injury as we're ministering to those families. I love that. And you know, sometimes in certain clinical scenarios, coding a patient is, is not the wrong thing, even if you don't get them back or even if you think it's it's unlikely to restart their heart. There are some families who say, like I mentioned before, time is the most important thing to me. And if there's anything you can do to even give me a little bit more time, that's what I want. And, you know, these families are trying to write a story that they can live with long after they leave the ICU or they leave the hospital. And if part of that story, they feel like they need to know that my child died and we were doing every last thing possible to bring them back, compressions included, that might not be a failure on our part. And so futility is a whole nother conversation, but I'll just put out there that I don't believe it's always futile for a patient to undergo resuscitation attempts, even if it's unsuccessful. Sort of flipping the common script of, I don't want to pound on their chest as like a doctor or nurse. Yeah. And, you know, Stockton mentioned moral distress and moral injury. I'm I'm not suggesting that that doesn't come without moral distress because that might not be the choice that we would make in their situation. But moral distress, there are different avenues to deal with moral distress than trying to convince a family to make a choice that they don't want to make. Wow. What a powerful conversation. And Every time we have a, a palliative care didactic session or we ask you guys to help us at the bedside, I feel like I leave understanding patients more, having more empathy. And I think that's been a major learning point for me today with this conversation. In addition, just increase awareness of you guys, your value um, to our patients, and then reinforcement of some of these practical tips. Before we wrap things up, anything else you want to leave with our learners? No, I mean, I am very grateful that we had an opportunity to come sit and talk about this stuff. And Katie and I feel very passionately about this work. And as hard as our jobs are, I think it's the best job in the world because it puts us in such close approximation to a parent's love for their child in extraordinary circumstances. We say all the time that the ground that we walk is sacred ground. And so we consider it a privilege to, to be able to come to the table with these families and invite it into that space as relative strangers. And I'm certain that many of the listeners feel the same way because this uh, the ICU puts a lens on that relationship of parent to child like almost nothing else can. And so grateful for those of us who feel called to this work and um, who can lean into the beauty in that relationship despite the sadness that surrounds it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, thank you guys so much for having us and for taking the time to listen to what we have to say. Like Stockton mentioned we're passionate about this and most of our job is to talk. And so we, we like to talk and <laughs> take any opportunity we can get to talk. I would just encourage all the listeners to um, reach out if they have a palliative care at their own institution, because I can almost guarantee you that those people like to talk as well. <laughs> and we are here to talk through cases, to talk through headlines, scenarios, permissible choices, strategies on how to approach families and help navigate this. We 
firmly believe that primary teams should be having these difficult conversations as well. We don't want to monopolize this area of medical care. And so we want to share these skills and empower you guys as much as possible to lead this and start this with families and then bring palliative care in as needed and um, to be an extra layer of support, like I mentioned, for families, but also for for teams. So please reach out to us and um, hope this is not the end of the conversation. Wow. Thank you so both so much for coming. Oh yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to our next conversation, whether it's at the bedside or back here on the podcast, right? Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.